I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. This, I think, really is one place where Putin and Xi connect quite closely. They both feel shut out and marginalized. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin loom over geopolitics in a way that few leaders have in decades. Not even Mao and Stalin drove global events the way Xi and Putin do today. And so understanding what drives these two men, how they view the world, what they want, is as important as any question in foreign policy and international affairs. To that end, I talked to two of the absolute best scholars who study these countries and their histories. The great Russia scholar, Stephen Kotkin, and the great China scholar, Orville Schell. This is part one of our conversation. Before we begin, I wanted to offer some context for the conversation you're about to hear. I'd had a series of exchanges with Kotkin and Shell separately about China and Russia, their strategic partnership, and the similarities and differences between their leaders. Each has written a slew of powerful foreign affairs essays on these topics, but I wanted to bring them together for a wide-ranging conversation about Putin and Xi and the history that shapes them and by extension shapes the world. The conversation was so fascinating and so rich that I blew through our usual time limit and kept going for another hour. We're going to bring it to you in two parts. We hope you enjoy it. I also wanted to note, we taped this conversation before Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin launched his mutiny, only to call it off 24 hours later. So while we don't cover those developments here, we surely will on episodes to come. So we're recording this the day after Xi Jinping turned 70, but since Vladimir Putin has already wished his dear friend health and happiness, we can move past that occasion and get right right to the substance of, of uh, the topic today. You know, Steve is the ultimate biographer of, of Stalin. You're completing your third volume of a magnificent and transfixing biography of the man. And Orville is the author of more books than I can rattle off here on China, past and present. But you're also both among the most trenchant and eloquent observers of these two contemporary figures and their effect on the world. So we really could have no better pair to make sense of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and their commonalities and differences and their relationship and what it all means. But I, I want to start by tracing the arc of American and Western understanding of the two figures. When you go back and look at profiles and speeches and memos from officials on both of them from their early years in power, you see this kind of powerful impulse among Americans, especially to view both Xi and Putin as moderate, as modernizers, as you know, Western-oriented, certainly as leaders we could basically get along with and who would by and large move their societies in a direction that seemed, you know, roughly aligned with our interests and our values. So Orville, let's start with you. What was the early impression of Xi Jinping? What did it miss and how did it start to change as you reflect over the last 10 years or so of uh, our interactions with him? When Xi Jinping came to power, he was, he was not somebody with wh whom we were tremendously familiar. We knew more about his father. And we rather blithely, and I think quite naively, assumed that because his father had undergone a lot of persecution and sort of uh, uh, political travails, that this might have rubbed off on his son in a way that would have made him somewhat jaundiced about the old one-party Leninist state and the whole revolution. And um, I remember writing a book concluding just as he was coming to office and cautiously 
wondering if he might not turn into a reformer. Well, he did not. So now we're left to try to figure out who exactly is he? And this is why I really welcome chatting with you, Steve, here, because I think, you know, any leader, there's history, there's ideology, and then there's the man. And all of those ingredients have to be factored into any kind of a sort of understanding of what drives them. And I can't think of a leader in Chinese history who is, a, is more opaque in this regard than Xi Jinping is, particularly the latter part, the psychological syndrome uh, out of which he operates. I think it's really important, but very, very difficult to divine. Just to linger on Xi Jinping's father for a second, say a bit more about who he was and how we thought that might have shaped Xi Jinping and how he thought about China. Well, Xi Jinping's father, uh, Xi Zhongxun, was somebody who, during the Cultural Revolution, had a very bitter experience. And like so many other people, was accused of being a counter-revolutionary anti-party element. And it was in that climate of sort of the Maoist, the most intense period of Mao's revolution, the Cultural Revolution, that Xi Jinping came of age. And there is a, a scholar at the American University, Joseph Tarijan, who's been writing about his father and actually discovering some very interesting stuff. But we still are left to sort of divine, you know, how did that impact his son? And I think the only thing that, that, that we can say is that when you're a teenager and your father is pilloried, and of course you yearn to love and respect your parents, that casts a tremendous shadow on your life. And he got sent away to the countryside, to the family, sort of Shanxi province, which is where the father came from. And then finally, at one point, he came back to Beijing, tried to escape his exile, and his mother berated him and sent him back again. So we have here, at least insofar as we understand it, a tremendously complicated parental web of relations in which he grew up, having to, in a certain sense, despise his own father, because he was considered a counter-revolutionary element, at the same time yearning to be part of what was going on, the Cultural Revolution, to be a red guard, to get into the little red pioneers. And one telling fact is that he applied eight times to become a little red pioneer, which is a sort of the preceding party membership later on when you're older. And of course, he was eschewed and turned down because of his black category of family background. Finally, a friend of the family presided over the decision, and he did get in. But you have to kind of wonder, how did that influence him, this idea that you have to be a sort of 200 percenter, more red than anyone else in order to be accepted, and then you're still not quite accepted, and to survive? Before we, we focus on this idea of you know psychological syndrome, as you put it, Orville, Steve, let me turn to you to go back over this course of Western understanding of Putin. This is obviously slightly longer history. He's been in power longer. But as you look at what we thought we knew of Putin and what we got wrong and why, how do you understand that history of our own interpretation? Orville mentioning the person who presided over Xi Jinping's admission to the pathway towards eventual Communist Party membership reminds us, Dan, of contingency. We always have very substantial, deep, long-term, structural understandings of how things work. And yet in our own lives, there's been so much contingency, so much accident, randomness, intercession of people, 
And so we have to be careful to recuperate that contingency in our analyses. You know, having said that, let's linger for a minute on the structural factors that the contingency eventually trips. So with Xi Jinping, he doesn't claw his way to power. This is not something where he has been fighting internally battles and and cleverness and just Machiavellianism and finally made his way to the top. He got tapped on the back of the shoulder. You know, the way people get tapped on the back of the shoulder at Yale to run the United States. We need to understand this. And there's a parallel, Dan, with Gorbachev, which is why I bring this up. So Gorbachev is also this figure who is tapped by the KGB faction, by the powers that be, who are worried both about the corrosive corruption that's become completely pervasive in the Soviet system, and they're worried about the loss of dynamism in the Soviet economy, in the Cold War competition. And so they settle on a guy that they don't know that well, but they do know that he's not corrupt. They do know that he's a sort of true believer in the system. And and his mandate is to tackle the corruption and re-energize the system. Same mandate as Xi Jinping. And a similar selection process, although hardly identical, and there's a sort of different interest groups and power relations and different time periods. So we want to be careful with the analogy, but the analogy works to a certain extent. And so the big difference is that Gorbachev has happened so that when Xi Jinping is tapped, the Gorbachev attempt to re-energize the system, to get back to dynamism, ends in liquidation, self-liquidation, in implosion. And so if Xi Jinping is going to do anything, he's not going to do Gorbachev. That's 100% clear. Clear as day. Whatever lessons he learned from his dad and whatever lessons he learned from his own experience in the Cultural Revolution and whatever happened behind the scenes, and we may never know that. But the key point here is that he comes in, Xi Jinping comes in, unlike Gorbachev, where Gorbachev's already happened and the lesson is profound and clear. And so the party is dedicated to a non-repeat of Gorbachev. So the whole story is what is their analysis of the Soviet collapse? Not what is our analysis necessarily, not what do we think happened or didn't happen, but what does Xi Jinping think happened or didn't happen? Let's remember that Xi Jinping was also running the party school before he got the big job. And so the two biggest topics at the party school were Soviet collapse and never to repeat in China, and then Western decadence and et cetera, you know, the U.S. is in decline and all of that mythology that they are marinated in at the party school. But the point, the number one topic, Dan, is no Gorbachev, no political opening, no political reform, no suicide of communist party rule. And so if you knew this, if you were aware of this, you saw that there were limits to the possibility of political opening and reform under Xi Jinping. I wrote a book on the Soviet collapse, a short book in which I made the argument about how there's no political reform equilibrium in communism. And once you begin a reform, you open up the party for uh, liberalization. People want other parties. They don't want the communist party. So the communist party is left with this problem that it can't open up. It can't politically liberalize and maintain its monopoly. 
it either has to crack down on political opening or it has to go all the way in Gorbachev fashion and the thing unravels. And so for me, the history of the party and Xi Jinping's understanding of the history of the party were absolutely central to what we needed to be thinking about. And Steve, you know, um, China did have its sort of near Gorbachev moment, didn't it, in 1989, when reforms started unraveling the Leninist structure. And you will remember that one of the most embarrassing moments for the, the Chinese Communist Party in 1989 was that Gorbachev was supposed to come to Beijing and they were going to bury the hatchet. And Gorbachev did actually come to Beijing and he couldn't go to Tiananmen Square to be received with proper pomp and circumstance. They had to meet him at the airport. And all the way into the city, there were people holding such signs as, where is China's Gorbachev? So for a good Chinese Leninist, this was a wake up moment, you know, and I think it's very interesting. I've never seen anybody say anything about where Xi Jinping was during 1989, what his disposition was towards those demonstrations. But whatever he did, I think the message he ultimately took home was, we're not going there. You know, there's that famous line, Orwell, that you know that Deng supposedly told one of his children that he thinks Gorbachev is an idiot. Well, I think if you're a good Leninist, that's not an illogical conclusion, is it? Yeah, the irony, of course, is that Gorbachev was himself a Leninist and thought that there was a better Lenin, a more pluralistic, non-Stalinist or pre-Stalinist Lenin, which was a fiction, which was an illusion, but it was his North Star and he followed it, as a result of which communism died more or less peacefully in the Soviet case. And then there was the the non-fantasy version of Leninism that Deng Xiaoping had. And of course, Deng did purge the party of the fantasy Leninists, the ones who thought reform and opening was possible in a political sense, not an economic or a foreign policy sense. I mean, I I do think, you know, we we don't want to forget that during the halcyon decade of the 1980s, when we thought there was a fair wind blowing towards reform and, and and opening and China might slowly integrate into the world system and become more soluble, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a very exhilarating, exciting time when many of us actually thought there was a prospect that this communist party might make some kind of a peaceful transition to something else. But we should remember that in 1981, just as the reforms were hitting the high tide in China, Deng Xiaoping came out with something that he called the four basic principles. And everybody's just thought, oh, well, this is sort of communist rhetoric. But what were they all about? They were all about the party. And he wanted to remind people that whatever the hell was going on, we're not getting rid of this one-party Leninist system. We'll be back after a short break. This podcast is sponsored by Stanford University Press. Publishers of Secret Leviathan, Secrecy and State Capacity Under Soviet Authoritarianism by Mark Harrison. The most recent title in the Stanford Hoover series on authoritarianism, Secret Leviathan combines quantitative and qualitative evidence to evaluate the impact of secrecy on Soviet state capacity from the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution to the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Informed by years of research in former Soviet archives, Secret Leviathan explores the core role of secrecy in building and stabilizing the communist states of the 20th century, as well as the corrosive effects of secrecy on the capabilities of authoritarian states. 
Available at www.sup.org or wherever books are sold. One thing I want to ask you about, Steve, is this. I mean, one element of, well, both Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping, and I'm wondering about Putin, is this idea of a restoration of greatness, you know, rejuvenation, and in China's case, the China dream. But I think Putin also has such a dream, maybe a bit more inchoate and less spelled out, but it seems to me this is one thing they do share in common. Let me just add to that question, Steve. You know, you trace this history of Xi, but it does seem like there are some commonalities with Putin. He was also kind of tapped, not exactly out of nowhere, but he was not the the obvious heir apparent. He, at least in the, the mythology that most of us get, he was very much foreign by the experience of watching the Soviet Union fall, just as Xi Jinping presumably was. So in addition to that sense of lost greatness, how did that sense of humiliation and shame of that period shape him? Yeah, it's a very good question. There are similarities besides age between the two, Xi Jinping and Putin. They're both 70. They had sort of hard scrabble youths. Their growing up was not luxurious, to, to put it mildly. And yet they rose somehow to positions of authority thanks to these circumstances and others who facilitated their career. And, and Putin was appointed more or less because he vowed to protect the Boris Yeltsin family, as it was called, the family in the kind of mafia sense of the state, that if Yeltsin stepped down, he wouldn't go to prison. And at the same time, Putin would fix the chaos, the anarchy of the Russian state, because the Soviet collapse in Russia didn't end in 1991, as I argued in my book. It continued all throughout the 90s. And so Putin's mandate, as it were, was to protect the Yeltsin family, but also to arrest the continued decline, implosion that Russia had inherited from the Soviet case. And so that life experience of the collapse is also very, very imminent for him, just as for Xi Jinping, right? Xi Jinping has a different experience in the Chinese countryside, and Orville's already alluded to this. Putin is in the the second capital, St. Petersburg, but he's in a communal apartment, a rough and tumble courtyard. There's the experience of World War II and the Nazi siege of Leningrad, where nearly a million people starve to death or die of disease resulting from their starvation. And so all of that is the crucible, as it were, in which Putin rises. And then he he gets into the KGB, as we know, the same way that Xi Jinping got into the party track, which was to knock on the door. They tapped him, but but ultimately he was looking for it and looking for it, and that must have gotten around. He doesn't have a distinguished career in the KGB, just like Xi Jinping doesn't have an incredibly distinguished career as a provincial leader. And then Putin is in Germany, right there on the front line of the Cold War, when the wall implodes and Moscow is absent, as he said, not giving instructions over the phone. And so he experiences that calamity, the end of the Soviet forward position in Eastern Europe firsthand. And that's extremely formative for him. And so resurrection of the state, resurrection of the system in some fashion, not the communist system because that's gone and, and not recuperable, but resurrection of a Russian state and a great power status because the Soviet Union was not just a single party monopoly communist state. 
was also a great power. But here we need to expand the purview a little bit. You know, we have the Leninist picture. Leninism is a very specific form of organization, and we need to spend a little bit more time on what that is. But we've got that picture partially introduced. But the other picture is the Eurasian land empire or multiple millennia of history. And so what you've got here is an upstart version of power that's very modern, and that's the world we live in which is the British Empire, a big navy, trade, especially trade with other advanced countries that have high-tech and high-value-added products, and a kind of open market economy based on trade and based on a navy with limited government in some form, right? Limits on executive power. And this model is unbelievably powerful, and it's a kind of upstart. You can see it in with the Dutch, who have a version of it, but it's really the British, and the British defeat the French in a more or less 100-year war that culminates in the defeat of Napoleon. And then the British from 1815, they refashion the world in their image as a world where littoral states have an advantage and land-based empires are at a disadvantage. They're autocratic, they have land armies, and they don't trade with other advanced countries. They're often commodity exporters where they don't develop their own high tech and they don't acquire the high tech the same way. They're losing a game that for a long time they won, right? For a very long time, the land-based empires had the riches, had the system until this British upstart. And then of course the Americans inherit that British power and the Americans transform it. And so we have these two forms of power, one an upstart and one at least a millennium long. And the upstart one's got the upper hand. And so we see these autocratic, ancient civilization, land empires of Eurasia fighting back. And they fight back on the ground that they're strongest, which is to say history, which is to say civilization, right? Huntington didn't get it right when he said there would be a clash of civilizations that would arise naturally. What he did get right was the clash of civilizations handbook would be available for these countries to try to realize a Huntington vision, to pitch themselves as, as civilizations, not just countries, and to try to talk about that golden age and how that golden age is being stolen from them by Western imperialism, first the British or the, the Dutch and now the Americans, and how no one has the right to rule them. And they're sovereign, and they're much greater, and they're much older. And who put the Americans in charge of the world when, in fact, the Americans barely exist when it com compares to Russian history or Chinese history. We could say the same for Persian history. We see a version of this in Turkey, Dan. We see a version of this in India. And so it's very interesting to see this clash and for them to object to the world as it's configured in the last two centuries, but especially since 1945, and to try to reclaim their self-assigned place their sense of being more ancient, more legitimate, more impressive. And so for us, we need to think about how the Chinese Communist Party does not own Chinese civilization. And so being able a little bit to separate the civilization from the regime rather than to allow the conflation. That's true in the Russia case. It's true in the Iranian case. The mullahs don't represent Persian civilization through the centuries. 
Vladimir Putin does not equal Russian civilization and its achievements. And Xi Jinping and the Communist Party don't as well. But once you put this Eurasian landmass autocracy, land-based empire, and extortion or expropriation or repression together as a package, you see that they're fighting a losing game, which is one of the reasons we see them teaming up. Orville, does the does Xi Jinping's view of history align with that? How when you when you talk about that sense of reclaimed greatness and how it relates to humiliation in his own life experience and his countries, how how does he trace that narrative? Here, I think there is something that Xi Jinping and Putin actually share, and that is we forget that I mean Leninism is all about how to build a strong, well organized one party structure and state. But there was another aspect of Lenin, and that was his his theories on imperialism, that you know the developed world, in order the higher stage of capitalism is to you finally you have to export all your your excesses abroad and colonize and exploit lesser peoples to keep the whole capitalist edifice going, and of course out of this came out of Lenin is anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, anti all of these these kinds of things from the 19th and early 20th century came the whole culture of victimization. This is something that, of course, China has taken to a, a very high stage. But I think it, it was also very deeply implicit in the way Russia looks at the world, that you're disrespected, you're occupied, you're disesteemed, you know, you have your victories, but still. And this, I think, really is one place where Putin and Xi, I think, connect quite closely. They both feel shut out and marginalized. And there's an expression in Chinese, you know, it, it, it makes me laugh every time I hear it. And the foreign ministry uses it a lot. It's Shanghai, Ganqing. It means you've hurt the feelings of the Ch- Chinese people, as if the Chinese people were some throbbing mass of, of weakness that you're constantly offending. But so I think that comes from Lenin, because he's the guy who set up the us and them the colonializers, the imperializers, and then the victims, the people who were preyed upon and oppressed and exploited and marginalized, mistreated. And so this is a very deep thing that ties them together, and they want to be respected, and yet they don't act respectably. So they're in a terrible loop, and yet they're constantly offended. And I think this drives them in in a very powerful way together. And it it just simply infuriates them, because we cannot and will not and are unable to say, oh, well, you know, fine, you're a little autocracy. You've done a lot. You've pulled a lot of people out of misery. It's all good. Let's just not criticize you. Well, that's not going to happen. But so there's that deep-rooted victim culture that came out, I think, of the Leninist narrative, which both have deeply imbibed. And Dan, here we have the ultimate irony, because Marxism-Leninism, it's Western. It's a Western import. So here, everything is anti-Western. Everything is about keeping out the pollution of the West, the decadence of the West, the amoralism of the West, and all the other things that they accuse the West of, but in the name of Western ideology. I mean, Marx was not Chinese, although certainly uh, you could think that if you spent some time in a party school there. So on this point about the anti-imperialism, imperialism happened. The Chinese were abused. 
The British were narco-traffickers. They did the opium war, forcing opium into China. All of that happened. We know that history and we write about that history. We're not in denial of that history. The part that China is in denial of are the depredations that Communist Party rule caused domestically. What the British did in China is inexcusable. But what the British did in China doesn't begin to scratch the surface of what Mao did in China. Mao put numbers up on the board that Hitler never put up on the board, let alone the British, right? So we're talking about a very selective view of history. And, and the further point that they're right, that Western imperialism was very nefarious for China. And yet, okay, We'll talk about that, but let's also talk about what your own communist system has done to your country. And if you want to talk about that, you know, open up your archives. We may never see the Communist Party archives of China the way we have in the Soviet case. I've been very privileged to take advantage. China scholars don't have the, the that same privilege, that same fortune where the regime has imploded and the archives uh, became widely available. But I guarantee you, Dan, the secret of the Chinese Communist Party archives, if it's ever revealed one day, is that they, they're communists. That's the secret of the Soviet archives. You know, I, I remember vividly walking down the Avenue of Eternal Peace during, I guess it was National Day or whatever, and they'd have pictures of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Stalin, giant painted portraits up, and you think, oh my Lord, where's the anti-foreignism here? And, and I might also say, that, you know, having spent decades uh, living within this sort of victim culture of China that was elaborated out of Leninism, you, you go to Vietnam or Holland or even Burma or Cambodia or India. I mean, here's some places that were really colonized. China was only partially colonized, and I don't make any excuses for that. But the fact that they have managed to retain this idea of, of, of a century of humiliation, even when they are so demonstrably succeeding, is very striking. And you have to ask yourself, what is it that appeals to them about this idea of in, insisting, even when they are one of the great success stories of, the, of global history, on being victims? Thank you for listening. Please tune in on July 13th when we'll release the second part of my conversation with Stephen Kotkin and Orville Schell. The Foreign Affairs interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming Dresser, and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra, and Marcus Zacharia. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in.